Hello and welcome to Beauty Island, the beauty podcast that celebrates life and lipstick. If you've come through Apple's new and noteworthy featured section, welcome. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back and thank you for your support. I'm your host, beauty journalist Brittany Stewart, and each episode I sit down with a guest to ask them about the eight beauty products that have a special memory or meaning for them. Along the way, we find out more about their life, career, and the people and events that have shaped them into who they are today. Today, my guest is Glynis Trail Nash. Glynis is the fashion editor of The Australian, one of Australia's most popular newspapers with a reach of 1.9 million. Her career has spanned a range of magazines and newspapers, including Who, InStyle and Grazia, and she's covered numerous local and international fashion weeks. That's actually where I first met her about four years ago, when at my first Australian Fashion Week, I saw her instantly recognisable cherry red hair on the front row, summoned up all my courage and approached her to ask her if I could intern with her in the fashion department ended up doing so for two weeks in my final year of uni and I learned so much from her. Glynis invited me into her beautifully styled Sydney apartment. Think a green velvet sofa, wall-to-wall books, a piano and piles of fashion books everywhere to talk about growing up in Perth, moving to London to pursue her love of acting and singing, juggling her passions and talents for jazz and fashion writing, the perfume that instantly transports her back to those days performing at the Edinburgh Festival, working in fashion for newspapers compared to magazines, the state of the Australian fashion industry, interviewing Jean-Paul Gaultier, her signature red hair, while you never catch her in active wear as leisure wear, her vintage YSL collection, and why she describes herself as a late bloomer. Enjoy. Glynis, thank you very much for welcoming me into your... Tiny (laughs) tiny home. (laughs) When you think of a fashion editor, what their apartment would look like... I feel like this is it. The stacks of fashion books, you've got a very cool sofa and furniture. It's brilliant. Thank you. I want to start at the beginning, which is an obvious place to start, (laughs) as they say, and and ask you about where that first beauty memory came from. Yeah, we weren't... I I do remember my mum that she had... She always had loose powder, big a big pot of loose powder. And it was... I don't know what the brand was now. I was trying to think of it. And it it was sort of a blue pot with gold lettering on the top. And... That and a Clinique lipstick, I always remember. They were the two things. She wasn't super into the beauty thing. We were kind of a very kind of lo-fi sort of family. You know, we lived on a small property in the outer suburbs of Perth. So I was kind of half the time mucking out in the paddock or in the orchard and then the rest of the time sewing and playing with dolls and stuff, I suppose. (laughs) You know, I was quite the tomboy turned girly girl. The first product on your list, which is the first product that you remember buying or having yourself, is one that I think a lot of people can sympathise with, which is the dodgy black (laughs) eyeliner. Oh my God. And I remember I actually bought this thing from some chemist. It was the worst eyeliner I can imagine it was so hard (laughs) and I had no idea what I was doing I think I might have been about 13 and I remember thinking that I shouldn't tell mum that I bought it I think because I thought I might get in trouble like as if but I remember you know being in the bathroom by myself kind of trying to apply this terrible terrible hard black eyeliner and it was just awful I don't really think I ever used it again after that first attempt to be honest As you mentioned, you you were born and you grew up in Perth. What was it like? Oh, wow. Yeah. So like I said, we were in this weird sort of semi-rural kind of suburb. So it was quite about sort of about an hour, a 45 minute drive out of the city. And it's a little bit redneck these days. (laughs) Then it was just kind of semi-rural. We had sort of had a bit of bushland nearby. I had orchards to play in, that kind of thing. There was lots of animals around. But Perth was really quiet. You know, it was like a big country town, really. And you didn't realise that until, like, I moved to London when I was 25. And I came back to Perth, and I'm in the middle of Northbridge one day having lunch, and that's kind of a high-traffic area, you know, and I'm just looking in the street going, where are all the people? There's, like, two people. I was like, wow. But, you know, it was a great place to grow up, though, at that time. And did you grow up? not necessarily dreaming, but wanting to move to the bigger places? Or were you happy in Perth? Oh, uh, yeah, no, I definitely wanted to leave. <laughs> it's just that. And, and you know what? So many of us did when we kind of hit about 25, we were all out of there. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I sort of went to boarding school and stuff. So I think that's probably 
even though as a kid, like my mum and I used to watch a lot of matinees on telly. They always used to do like a double, you know, midday matinee on the television. And there were always lots of old 50s films and stuff like that. And that, I think for me, was probably my introduction to this concept of glamour, whatever that is today, because I think it's a very different thing. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But that to me was kind of like eye-opening. And I do remember I used to sketch the dresses sometimes from the movies. Just like I was obsessed with sketching dresses, actually, as a kind of young teenager. Not, I never wanted to be a designer, but I just used to like to draw the dresses and sew and stuff. And so what did you want to be when you grew up at mm. that age? Oh, look, I probably still wanted to be an actor and um, later a singer. And, you know, I still do a bit of that. So that is good. But yeah, I think I, I think I did. I definitely wanted to be an actor for a long time. And I did quite a bit of it when I was in my, you know, through school and university. And then I was I did a bit of professional work in my early 20s and mid 20s late 20s even I think I did an arts degree as so many of us did and I did a double major in French and English sort of with a major in theatre and the great thing is that the French degree has actually come in handy because I do get to Paris and for work you know and that's nice and so I get to you know it's it's my mission to not lose my French and I did I felt like I lost it for many many years and um, I didn't go there for about 10 years at one point and I thought, you know what, this has to stop. <laughs> so I think it was about 10 years ago I said, I'm just going to make sure I keep going back. And so I kind of have really, which has been great. And we will talk more about Paris and also your love of music and acting as well. But the second product on your list, which you did briefly mention before, is the one that defined your teens and 20s, which is Clinique Black Honey Lipstick. Right. It's just, it was kind of the amount of people I've heard subsequently that were obsessed with it in their 20s. It's quite funny. I remember feeling very polished. I remember like when I would have sort of jobs and things to go to or whatever, I would wear a Clinique. I think it was like Urban Defence sunscreen, like a tinted sunscreen. So it's just like just enough coverage and um, a great pair of sunglasses and this black honey lipstick. And I just felt perfectly polished and like I was terribly grown up. (laughs) and get in my little dodgy car and go to whatever appointment I had to go to. And yeah, it was this really defining beauty product at that point because it just, it was kind of sheer and a little bit dark, but polished. Do you still have one or would you ever wear it now? Do you know what? They, They discontinued it at a certain point. And then I discovered some many years later that they had relaunched it and I got one and it just didn't have the same appeal. I didn't feel that. And I think because I had, I never wear sheer lipstick anymore. I'm, I'm a, I'm an absolute, which I'm sure we'll talk about lipstick girl, but yeah, just the love affair was over. It was quite sad. actually. (laughs) Now you moved to the UK when you were uh, 25 what was your first foot in the door in the industry? Was it before then or was it when you went over to the UK? Because I think you were a, a sub-editor I at was stage. a sub-editor. My first, my first break, I guess, into publishing was when I was still just finishing my degree and my mum had sent me a letter with a cut-out thing from the paper of a job advertisement for a part, half-time job in the publications unit at UWA and said, I think you should apply for this. And I went, okay. So I did um, because I was waitressing and doing whatever, but I was, you know, about to finish my degree. I had one unit to finish. And um, so I applied for this job and I got this job. (laughs) And my boss used to joke with me after that. He would say, you were such, you were such a well-dressed woman when you came to that interview in in your nice outfit. And now you turn up in ripped jeans. I don't know what happened (laughs) because I still felt I was still on campus. You know what I mean? So it was, it was a great job though, because I had great people to teach me proofreading, basic editing, had to, you know, put this little newsletter together every fortnight and stuff for the kind of university staff, really. And so that was fantastic. And then I did a, you know, a bit of freelance sub-editing there. And then when I moved to London, which was really to pursue the singing, right, which I did, but I always had a day job and it was always in publishing, whether it was temping in, you know, kind of publishing companies as an editorial assistant, reading dodgy letters for like that's life or whatever oh my god I can't even begin to tell you um or eventually moved into freelance subbing I did edit a magazine for a while it was a an education magazine which is very strange but um yeah I ended up freelance sub editing while and you know by day and singing by night which was you know kind of great fun for a while there and that's been a common theme that has continued and we will Mm. get to the more recent singing but at that time you're pursuing 
music, you were also pursuing acting, and I believe you had a one-woman show at the Edinburgh Festival. <laughs> I did. I actually did, which I had done in Perth uh, about four years, well, just before I'd left Perth, and uh, it was a sort of one-woman show plus band, shall we call it that, and it was a cabaret thing with a character <laughs> called Madison Page, and the show was called Madison Page Dares to Ask what is this thing called love? And basically the whole premise of this show was the jazz gig from hell. And it was a big fat, everything about it was a big flat, fat jazz cliche. So the singer's having, uh, you know, an affair with the pianist who gets pissed off that she lets everyone know this. So it's all the happy love songs, the first half. And then in halfway through, he just ups and goes and she follows him and then she comes back mascara, you know, down her face. And then it's all the revenge songs come out and then she runs off with the bass player. You know, it's it's that simple. <laughs> and, it, you know, we got great reviews, actually. And the funniest thing about it was a friend of mine, Rob Finlayson, wrote the script and in Perth and again in Edinburgh, he came out so that we could do it. And um, it had very general appeal, very sort of broad appeal. It was a tiny venue and all that. It was, you know, there's a thousand acts on at Edinburgh. It's the most insane few weeks of your life. But when you, I had friends who were jazz people who came in and they were all laughing in completely different places because, and that was the beauty of it. And I always like that. And even with my writing, I try and do that a bit. You know, you kind of write something you think everyone will get, but there's always, not always, sometimes you just work a little, whether it's a music gag or whether it's something else lying in there that you think certain people will get that and appreciate that. So yeah, that was, that was deeply satisfying to me when the jazz crowd kind of <laughs> got it. You know? I think the third product on your list, which are two perfumes, are um, remind you of that time. Yeah. Two YSL perfumes, YSL Paris and YSL in Love Again. Can you tell me about those? Yeah. So look, in, and I'm going to chuck a third one in that I haven't told you about actually. Go for it. So my first ever perfume was Paris, Yves Saint Laurent Paris. And I used to, at boarding school, I used to have the posters, the advertisements on my, you know, section in the boarding house because I just thought it was fucking glamour. It was, you know, the Eiffel Tower and the girl in the pink and black dress and the big bouquet of pink roses and this was to me the pinnacle of glamour and so I had this tiny 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 um, sample bottle that I think the family I stayed with in France on this exchange had given me and I, I eked that thing out to the last drop it was a tiny sample anyway so that was that then years later when when I went to London my first gig payment I ever got I got 50 pounds and I thought what am I going to buy with my 50 pounds and I went into John Lewis I think and department store and angel had just come out and I went oh I'm gonna try that oh my god that's amazing and I bought that with my 50 pounds and that is such a 90s thing as well um and I almost can't smell it anymore because I wore it for so many years and the other one is Yves Saint Laurent's In Love Again now this is a beautiful beautiful bright sort of perfume and I I sort of I kind of remember where I found it but I already liked it and I decided when we did Edinburgh that Madison was going to wear that perfume. Like Madison had her own underwear. She had her own, per like I, I went quite deep. She was, fully, <laughs> she was a fully developed character. She was a fully developed character. <laughs> Some people used to say alter ego. I used to take offense at that because, you know, but I always used to wear In Love Again when I performed. And because the Edinburgh Festival was just such a crazy, crazy, we were there for like, I was there for like six weeks, I think before and after as well. And whenever I smell that perfume now, I'm just like, I am in Edinburgh. It's just a little bit, it sends me a little bit strange. <laughs> yeah, that smell association thing is so strong. It's, yeah. But now, yeah, no, I can't, I can't do it anymore. But I do have a bottle of In Love Again somewhere in the cupboard. I do. None of the others though. Certainly not Angel. <laughs> If I never smell it again, it'll be too soon. You were in the UK for a number of years. What brought you back to Australia in the end? God, I was there for five years and I reckon three of them were really great. And I think the last two were just, you know, I was making great inroads with everything I was doing and I was just miserable. I think it's the sort of city that... Um, especially, you know, none of us, none of us had any money, you know, I mean, we were all working so many jobs and all the rest. I just started getting the headline gigs at, you know, big venues, um, jazz venues. And I still was just like, I am burnt out. I just, just, uh, and I just remember two of my girlfriends were having you know, one miserable kind of Sunday afternoon wine sessions. And they said, if you're this miserable, why don't you just go home for six months? And I went, you know what, that's a really good idea. So I did. <laughs> and, and I really thought it would just be six months. And here we are 18 years later. <laughs> 
So obviously your journalism career in Australia, you've worked at some huge magazines and newspapers. You were beauty editor and chief sub-editor at Who, fashion news editor at InStyle, Grazia, fashion features editor at Grazia, the first Australian iteration, and then on to the Sunday Telegraph and the Australian where you are now. Apart from the role that you're in now, which is the job that you look at most fondly? I think the years at Who, because I actually, I do love being at the Australian and we'll get back to that, but I think the years at Who were really good fun. So I, so yeah, I was, I was deputy no, was, was I even deputy chief sub? I don't even know that I made it to deputy chief sub. But I was on the subbing team and I had a great boss, Daniel Moore, who was just, he was just the best boss, right? And then I got this break to be the beauty editor and they'd never had one. I think they just wanted the advertising dollars, right? Understandable. So I think I must have been just the one person in the office, office that always wore lipstick. So I said, do you want to do it? And I'm like, yeah. But so I did that for the last year while still subbing. And the team in there, you know, the team at Who was just phenomenal. We had this great posse of 30-something women in there who were just super fun. We, we were all really tight with each other. And we had all these guys in there who kind of a generation older who were just the pop culture knowledge they had was unlike anything I'd ever encountered. The smarts in that place was incredible. And people say, really, who? I'm like, oh, yeah, in its day, it was amazing. And I actually came in at the end of the golden years. So I think it maybe was oh, after, maybe maybe it was 10 years old then. Not quite, no, I remember the 10th anniversary. I think it was before then. But when the Americans had come out to launch it, money was no object. You know, they used to have dinners in the boardroom when you'd work late. It was all laid on, blah, blah, blah. So even when I turned up, though, they still had fridges full of soft drinks and beer and wine for after hours. They had always had chocolate biscuits. You know, when that got downgraded to plain biscuits, we knew things were <laughs> not good. But we also had this fantastic thing called Keeping Current. And it was... a month that you could claim back to keep your pop cultural knowledge up to date. So you could go see movies, you could buy books, you could buy CDs and claim it back up to $70 a month. Now, right, I mean, that was even me as a sub-editor, like, wow. So then that ended and that was when it was all really over. But but they were great. Yeah, I was there for four years. It was great, great time there. And that's probably my fondest, also because it's my first proper full-time gig in Sydney. So they were quite formative years here. And I'm also interested about the shift that was kind of your first and I think only solely beauty role. And then Mm. since then, it's all been fashion and and features related. How did that shift come about? Look, the beauty thing, as much as I love the beauty thing, I didn't really love by the end being a beauty editor. I mean, at the beginning, it's amazing because like you're getting stuff sent to you every five minutes. And it's just like, wow, okay, yeah, I'll try this perfume too. And this, oh yeah, uh, yeah, that one. Um, But it was not my people, I think. And I'd always loved fashion more. And I had said to them at Who, I said, look, I really want to write more fashion. And they were like, well, we can't lose you anymore off the subsdesk. We need you on the subsdesk. So no. And right about that time, um, I was approached by someone at InStyle magazine saying, look, there's this gig going, you might want to apply for it. And I was like, should I apply for it? And they said, yeah, you probably should apply for it. I went, okay. So I applied for it and, and I got the job. And that was Nikki Brigger, who's now at Marie Claire, who hired me. And she's just hilarious. <laughs> she's one of the most hilarious people I have ever met. But I, that, she was the one that gave me the break into fashion writing. And so I was fashion news editor at InStyle for two years, I think. And it was just a great introduction. And I took over from Colin Bertram, who he was, I, mean, I only crossed over with him for a couple of weeks, but it was during fashion week was one of those weeks. And so he kind of introduced me to, you know, John Flower that seats the people and so-and-so and this. So that was a really good introduction. Um, yeah, so that was pretty much how that happened. It's interesting as well, because we hear a lot about the magazine industry and obviously the things that are going on, particularly in Australia with magazines at the moment, we've seen a lot closing, but you've worked at magazines and in fashion roles at newspapers. And I'm interested what's apart from in terms of working on a monthly compared to daily or weekly, what Mm. do you think the biggest difference is? 
Oh, well, it's funny because when I was at, when I moved into newspapers, I was at the Sun Herald first and that was, you know, a weekly effectively because it's a, sun, a Sunday paper. So we didn't have that crush of daily deadlines that I sometimes do now, <laughs> mostly do now. So we still had it pretty good, but oh my God, I remember, so Damien Woolnow and I started at the same time at InStyle and we both moved, he'd moved back to newspapers and I moved to newspapers after that. And we found ourselves sitting together at Fashion Week the next time and going, wow, we really didn't know when we had it so good, did we? But you've got to remember when, when I started in that, you know, at InStyle, I mean, I think your your generation will never understand what what the process was because like we would go to Fashion Week and then, you know, as a team, and then we would go back. And the week after Fashion Week, we would start discussing what trends we might cover for the, for that issue. And then we'd have many meetings about this. And then we'd sort of, you know, you'd get your, your film proofs and everything. Um, and you'd be looking through your eyepiece going, oh, yeah, the photo edit. You would take time. You had time to select all the photos and write all the copy and rewrite the copy and edit the copy and re-edit the copy. And, and three months later, this magazine would appear. There's... That it just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, so I mean that we we really had the end of that. Yeah, the, it's a it's a grind today. It's an absolute grind, and you know I don't I don't mind it. I for me I prefer newspapers. It's, it seems to be where I'm happier. I guess it's a different culture. It's a very different culture, but I enjoy the pace of it. It's just very no bullshit and very direct and very fast and very immediate and that for me is quite exciting and so for fashion week you know you'll be filing because our social media coverage is kind of part of our job now as well uh, as much as it's something to do for fun also but so we'll be filing you, you know effectively we're posting on social media all the time then we're filing if if we're blogging during the day and then we're filing for the paper and yeah that's it, it gets hectic but it's good <laughs> I, I do enjoy it. What is it like, obviously, as you were saying, with, with a magazine like in Salo Grazio, it was all kind of fashion focused, mm. whereas at the Australian fashion is a small section of yeah. a publication that covers yeah. everything. What's, well, it's what's me. that like? Yeah. <laughs> Just, Literally, yeah. yeah. I know. It's, do you know what? It, the good thing about it is because it's so different from everything else in the newspaper, I get a really good run, which like when I worked at the Sun-Herald, in terms of news coverage, because I, I always have regular things that I have to deliver. And so, for example, at the Sun-Herald, it was like a, a, you know, a weekend page, a fashion page, um, which was sort of a column and a few other bits. And my news stories, which were always kind of, you know, fashion slash celebrity stories, well, more fashion, because I never wanted to go into the celebrity thing. Um, I might have a 40% strike rate with them appearing in the paper because the big celebrity stories would always trounce my fashion stories and there was never room for that many colour stories which is what they kind of call them really the colour stories um but at the Oz because so much of it is politics it's business it's um hard news actually they want some levity in all of that and they want some colour in all of that so so I get a really good run which is fantastic and um I'm very appreciative of that <laughs> yeah I mean I think I would have probably in terms of stories that I file that run in the paper I would probably have like a 96% strike rate and even if it doesn't get up in the paper you can still now get it online so and I also think it's special as well because particularly say in the last last few years not all of the big newspapers have a dedicated fashion yeah, editor yeah yeah so that's been great I am again <laughs> very appreciative of my current role because there aren't that many. There really aren't that many. So, I mean, you know, I, I honestly truly believe that I have the best job in the country for what I do and I'm so grateful for that. You know, I've, I've been doing this a while now, so it's, yeah, you, you appreciate when you have a good gig because I've, I've, I've freelanced before and that was great, but this is just, it's, it's a great newspaper. It's a great, it's a great, yeah, great place to be. What do you think the biggest misconception about working in fashion journalism is? <laughs> yeah, the amount of people that say to me, so do you just get all your clothes for free? I mean, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> no, I will say a lot of stuff gets sent in, not clothes, usually just stuff, right? And I'm, and I really hate it because there's just so much waste. Oh my God, just the 
marketing packaging and all of that kind of stuff it just incenses me because i have to put so much stuff like the packaging into the either the recycling or the bin if it can't be recycled all that sort of thing but um you know in terms of the fashion stuff itself um and also anything unsolicited that is being sent in i can pretty much guarantee you it's not something that i will be interested in and thank you very much but my colleagues do very well out of what is sent in I will say that so obviously with your role at the Australian and previous roles you're going to a lot of uh, fashion weeks and glamorous events and with the rise of bloggers and influencers we're seeing a lot more people attending who are getting their clothes for free do you feel a pressure to dress a certain way or do you I mean you're obviously not perfect (laughs) no I because I just I've always dressed the way way I do and I'm you know I don't know really what that is sometimes I should I don't have an approach. I just, things appeal to me or they don't. Things suit me or they don't. Certain things I just won't go near. I just, it's a gut thing with me, what I like and how I dress. I don't know. I mean, at the moment, I'm kind of having one of those times where I'm just like, I hate everything. (laughs) I just want everything different, you know. But, you know, I'm not in a position to be able to do that. So, yeah, no, if you ever were to look through my Instagram, I I am a shocking repeat offender. Like, I have no qualms about that because I think that this disposability of fashion is one of the biggest issues we have in terms of the whole sustainability issues. Like if you really think that someone cares that you've worn that dress three times already, well, that's really sad. I'm sorry. That's on the scale of what's important in the world. That would be pretty low to me. So yeah, no, I, I just, I, I wear and rewear and rewear again things that I just love and things that I and often when I'm going to events particularly I've been at the office all day and if it's like a cocktail event I have to come home and change so I will zip home I may have to steam the dress because it's probably been hanging in my wardrobe for a while but I will zip home throw some makeup on steam the dress and I'm out the door and I don't want to have to think too much about what I'm going to wear so I've usually on the way home or that day sort of thought, what, what will I wear? Will I wear the blue dress? Will I wear the Dion dress? Will I wear, uh, I'll wear that one. So it's just, I try and do that as much as I can because it's just such a time suck, right? Yeah. Mornings are terrible because I have terrible time getting dressed in the morning. <laughs> but for an event, just chuck on a frock and a shoe and a clutch and I'm, I'm out the door. <laughs> the fourth product on your list is the two products that give you a confidence boost or your signature look Mm. and anyone who has seen you or knows you (laughs) it's quite easy to identify your signature look which is your hair yeah and the funny thing is it actually that was like the last thing I added to the list because I don't do it (laughs) right so I've like I go to the wonderful Brad Nata I have gone to Brad since pretty much I arrived in Sydney 18 years ago and I arrived in Sydney as a platinum blonde I was going to ask what your natural yes, colour well, is. Yes, well, yeah, the, I call the natural colour rat, mature <laughs> mouse. <laughs> yeah, I was platinum at two, so I felt at one point I could go platinum again. So when I was in London, I did that. I did the pixie cut and then I grew that out. And while I was growing out, I, I, I went platinum. But yeah, that's not really good for your hair. And, uh, <laughs> so I arrived here. I think I just wanted to put the London thing behind me for a while. So I turned up and I saw Brad and I just said, cut it all off and dye it red. And he went, I think you could sense that I was just kind of in a bit of a state. And he said, you know what? Yep. Yep. We'll cut a bit off. We'll cut a bit off. And yeah, we'll, okay, we'll go red. Just, yep. <laughs> and it's gotten progressively more red. But the colour that, well, there's two. And I actually couldn't tell you what the first one is, which is really bad. But we do a, we do the roots with a permanent red. And then Illumin is the, the brand. I don't know what actual shade it is, to be honest. But it's like a gloss colour. So that's why it's like... Ugh super bright (laughs) and it's very fresh at the moment because I had it done last weekend but yeah I never do it I always go to see Brad and Brad and his team do it (laughs) so um and they've been doing it for years so but yeah that's totally if there's one thing that is the signature it's that how would you describe the color yeah so a friend of mine tried to pantone it once and it came they came down to sort of between two different colors (laughs) color swatches a lot of people call it magenta yeah um and I think guess that's kind of close a lot of people call it pink and I'm like it's not pink really? yeah it's not pink it's it's kind of like it's like a gloss cherry or something I don't know I feel like that's spot on gloss yeah, cherry gloss cherry <laughs> let's go with that <laughs> and the other product that gives you your essential local confidence boost is a Chanel lipstick what is it and why yeah how does um, it work I, I always I, I can't wear lip gloss I cannot wear lip gloss I hate lip gloss it just get, my hair gets caught and it's horrible so I'm I'm absolutely a lipstick person and if there is one thing no always sunscreen we'll come to that but lipstick is the only other thing that I always wear 
out of the house. <laughs> Not at the moment. Um, and for daytime, I have a Chanel, I think it's Rouge Lua Velvet, um, number 34, La Raffine. And it is a very nice mid-pink. So it gives really good coverage. It's got a nice kind of creamy finish. It's not matte. Um, and I love matte, but it's for day. It's just too drying. Uh, I'm sure, although I'm sure there's matte lipsticks today that are not drying. But uh, yeah, I just really like the finish of it. And it just gives enough colour. Again, it's that sort of polished thing that I got in the 90s with Black Honey. But this is more of a colour thing, I guess. And it's not, but it's not bright. But in the evenings, I'll go bright. I'll do a a really bold fuchsia or a, um, or a red. I don't mind a red. Even a matte red. <laughs> now we've mentioned obviously the events and fashion weeks that you attend. And I would love to know more about both fashion weeks in Australia and also you travel to, you definitely go to Paris and have you done the other? I don't do that many of the other ones, to be honest. I've done, I've only done Milan and Paris ready to wear once. I've done New York quite a lot and Paris Couture I do quite a lot and that's my sort of I guess if I had a regular one that would be the one I've probably done the last six seasons in a row um lately maybe more no I've done more than that but I've skipped the odd season anyway since I've been at the Oz I've done it quite a lot and I used to do it at the Sun Herald as well I just sent, used to send myself because I wanted to practice my French you know? <laughs> and of course they weren't paying so they didn't care so <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, I tend to do the haute couture shows, which I love. I love it. So it's, you know, to me, it's like the two ends of my job. Like I sometimes get to go to Paris haute couture, which is amazing. And then I have to cover the Melbourne Cup. (laughs) Which I I will ask you about. (laughs) So I, I love, I love going there. And I imagine obviously the experience is amazing, but it would probably be one of the busiest weeks for you in terms of Australian. Australian Fashion Week? Absolutely. That is People, people, what, what incenses, well, not incenses me, actually, there's other things I'm plenty incensed about, but that is not one of them. But one of the things that just in, kind of infuriates me is during Fashion Week, there's just so many parties and stuff and people want you to go. And I'm like, are you serious? Like, no, <laughs> we're there from 9am to 9pm every, I'm not going to a party. No. So yeah, we're, we are on the ground all day, every day. And it's just, you know, it's hectic. It's really hectic, but it's fun. It is fun sometimes <laughs> and I actually think that's where we first met so mm. I was at my first mm. fashion week and very nervously and sweatily came up to you <laughs> and introduced and very myself. politely I might point out which always goes a long way with me <laughs> so I always has a special memory for me and very grateful for the opportunity so I actually came and interned you at did. the Australian you're my you. still my only intern I Yay. should point out because you know oh, I just... I'm not excited that you have <laughs> I'm excited that I was the first well yeah the first and currently the only so <laughs> And a very good intern also. And you did make the very big mistake of of showing your skill with Excel, as I recall, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Either with Australian Fashion Week or any of the International Fashion Weeks, obviously, I don't know whether it still happens, but to be in it, particularly when there's a designer that shows a really special collection or, or fashion-defining, season-defining collection, are there any standout moments or, or shows from your times at Fashion Weeks. Oh, yeah, no, there are. I've been brought to tears, I think, maybe three times, maybe four. Dion at the Opera House, the first one he did at the Opera House, actually, and the third one he did at the Opera House outside last year was pretty amazing because he'd kind of done the collection with the Opera House in mind and was kind of an inspiration for the collection. So you're watching this sort of on the forecourt um, or upstairs at the top of the stairs with these huge sails and then these dresses coming out, some of them which almost sort of reflected the sails and you're just like, oh, wow, this is a moment. And, um, and his first one inside there, which was early sort of 9am show, the light was just beautiful. It was just a spectacular collection. It was just every now and then you get a show where everything comes together, this, the space, the, the collection, the moment, you know, and that was one of those. Um, Tony Matichewski's one at Barangaroo a few years ago when he was the sponsor show. That was incredible. It was kind of epic in scale because the cat was this huge, just we were all sitting around the edge of this enormous cavernous space, you know, and that collection was just knockout. Oh, wow. And what else? What else? There are others. Sometimes they're kind of random too. I mean, Romance Was Born does a spectacular show. I'm a another I'm a fan you know this year's was was quite different because it was a dinner they didn't do a big show show they had a 
a dinner at Hubert in the city, which is kind of, it is honestly like walking into a 1930s Paris bistro or restaurant, you know, it's quite a fantastic space and they had drag queens performing and then they did this kind of catwalk moment where the models are just kind of whooping it up through the through the tables and everything and and it had this just kind of jazz age vibe to it this kind of 20s kind of hedonistic moment and you know everyone had a few wines by that stage (laughs) you know I was I I was allowed a few wines that night because it was a show actually so that wasn't a party (laughs) yeah that was amazing that coming together of of an idea and a and a space and the music and everything combining to just have this, create this spectacle. Have there been any incredible kind of, to use a cliche, the, the pinch me moments, whether it's a show or designers that you've met and interviewed or people oh, yeah. in fashion? Yeah, there, there are a few. I mean, look, I went to Paris a few years ago before ahead of the Jean-Paul Gaultier exhibition uh, in Melbourne. And so I went over to, it was during Couture and it was um, to interview him. And so you know, just to be able to sit in his, you know, just a room in his, um, he's got this incredible building in the Upper Marais. It's just phenomenal This with this incredible stained glass window. I just, every time I go there, I always take a photo of this bloody window. I'm like, you've got 20 photos of this window already, just enough. But just to sit down with him for like an hour and and my, my favourite thing about that interview was that we got on to talk it because he's a mad kitsch fan. Like I used to watch him on Eurotrash when I lived in London, which was such a fantastic show. <laughs> so silly. And so we got talking about ABBA and all that kind of thing. And I said to him, oh, have you seen the movie? And he said, but no, what movie? Because he does He really speaks like that. I said, ABBA the movie. And he went, there is a movie? And I'm like, yeah, they shot this movie in Australia in the 70s. He went, but I did not know. And I'm like... Yeah, well, you must, we must, you must see this. Anyway, so when he came out here, I tracked down a copy of this movie at JP Hi-Fi and I found the day I was seeing him again before the museum opening, exhibition opening, I suddenly went, oh, damn, I haven't wrapped the thing. So I went to a news agent in the hotel and I found some leopard print wrapping paper <laughs> and a big red bow and I thought, this, this seems right. <laughs> So before we started, I got this private tour, that was a pinch me moment, of his exhibition, which I didn't realise it was going to play out like that. I was just like, oh, we're doing this. Oh, we're too, oh, fuck, okay. Um, record. <laughs> you know? um, but I handed, I said, I have something for you. He's like, for me? I said, yes. And I handed him this thing. Oh, but I love it. I said, you haven't opened it yet. He said, but I love it. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, and then when he opened it, he said, oh, I said, have you seen it yet? And he said, no, I have not. And so I was just like, yes. <laughs> So that was that was that was one of my favourite memories. But um, yeah, that was pretty much pinch me. And also flying to Dallas of all places with Chanel for one of their uh, Metier d'Art shows. That was pretty incredible. Even though when we took off, there was a snowstorm in Texas and in Dallas. We didn't know if we would be landing in Dallas or perhaps in Houston. We didn't. But we just from Russia and I just went. Oh look, we'll take the flight. It's fine. <laughs> See where we end up. And it was incredible. From those to what some people might think is glamorous, but as you've said, the reality is not quite, which is the races in Melbourne. Oh, yes. 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 Possibly, you know, it's my least favourite event. I I won't lie. I find it kind of unfortunate, I guess, that the fashion industry has hooked onto this event as its main focus for the year. I mean, they, the amount of frocks that they sell at the department stores before this event. So for, from a retail perspective, yes, it's important, but I just think, could there not be another event that we make, that we build to have a similar effect? I don't know. I just, I, 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 I really feel, and this year really a lot of people were talking about it, I really feel the event as a whole is kind of on the nose. I think that, you know, I'm not a fan of horse racing. I'm not a fan of gambling. I'm, you know, and like you can go to the races and not actually see a horse at all. So that's fine. But you just know that's the reason you're there, actually. And I, I have kind of an issue with that. But it's kind of, it's one of the things I'm absolutely obliged to do as part of my job. So you do it because you have to. And you do your job in a hat. <laughs> when it's bucketing down with rain like it was this year it's not always fun (laughs) the fifth and sixth products on your list take us back to paris and they are the products that you always repurchase oh yeah when you're there so you've got a couple you've got forgive my terrible pronunciation particularly given your astounding french embryolis 
Mm-hmm. Imperialis, yeah. Imperialis moisturizer, the Bioderma micellar water, mm-hmm. a Chanel lippy. I'm not sure if it's the one that you, yeah. the same one. Yeah, yeah. And the sunscreen that you wear <gasps> from Shiseido. Yes. Well, in fact, the sunscreen, that one I've only found in the UK, US. Right. So that is pain in the next track down and when I just went on holiday to South America I bought three tubes of the stuff because I thought I don't know when I'm going to find this again so that anyway that one is phenomenal it's a Shiseido what's it called again um the urban environment tinted UV protector SPF 43 which is very specific that one a friend put me onto it in New York once and because I already like Shiseido sunscreens but plain ones and when I told her this she went out and found the other one and said oh yeah I've been using that you know tinted sunscreen I said what tinted sunscreen she went the Shiseido one I said, mine's not tinted. And she went, well, yeah, this one. And she showed me. I went, oh, I don't know this one. And so, But it's got this fantastic – for because I'm, I'm very pale-skinned, as are you. The number one, which is light, is actually light. And it is a perfect shade. And the finish is so nice and velvety because I hate sunscreens that you just want to, you know, scratch off <laughs> your face by the end of the day. Um, and I'm obsessive about sunscreen. I will not leave the house even for 10 minutes without sunscreen. And again, you just gives you enough coverage to I don't like wearing foundation during the day myself but this is just enough coverage to feel polished um, and I you know I keep saying that word and I almost never feel polished properly but, um, yeah, acceptable so that one that's I just stock up whenever I can find it which is mostly in the US or South America apparently as it turns out but the other ones yeah there's all these amazing French pharmacy brands and I went through a stage of like reading up on all of them and a lot of makeup artists here use the Embryolis cream and you can buy that on Net-A-Porter, I know. And it's just, it's like, a, it's a pharmacy brand, but it's so good. And the micellar water is again, great. I, that, I started using that because I'm really lazy and I'm a, not a morning person. So I just thought, I just want to wipe something over my face and then I'm done. Uh, so that's why I started using that. Whereas I use like an oil one at night with a hot cloth. So, But I always stock up and they're so much cheaper over there because that bioderma water here is so expensive. Like one big bottle is like $35, which is not that expensive. But it's, it's expensive when you can buy it in Paris. A double, you can always get a double pack <laughs> for like 15 99 euros. You know, it's just like... We are ripped off. (laughs) You also talk a lot on a lot of panels and industry events about the Australian fashion industry. And obviously you've seen it grow over your career. So I wanted to hear about the things that you've noticed, any particular challenges that you think it's facing at the moment. And also, is it, are you excited by it currently? Do you think it's innovative and exciting? Ooh, the big questions. Yeah, look, I do. I am excited about it. It's been a pretty grim few years. It, well, I feel like all we were reporting on at newspapers with fashion for a while there, it was all about all the brands coming into our market from overseas and, you know, the top shops and the H&Ms and the luxury brands, all of them taking our customers, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, guys, I was saying from the beginning, guys, this is a two-way street, right? They're coming here. Yes, we've had a bubble for years. Yes, but there's a big world out there that you can be selling to because we're a pretty small market in the scheme of things. Because, again, it was, you know, with Matches and Net-A-Porter and all those people coming in and taking – and we buy on those sites. We're in the top five of pretty much every major international online business, right, which is crazy to me. I still feel like there's a parallel universe of people just shopping online <laughs> because it's like how can our po- – anyway. But as a result, there it's a two-way street. So, you know – sell to the world you know and some brands have gotten that like you look at Zimmerman now I mean they are killing it and they've they've got investors in the US um they still you know they're the majority owners still they've just opened I think god I've been reporting on how many stores they open overseas for so long I think they're up to like 11 maybe something like that mostly in the US they've they've got London yeah they're doing so well and because you can recognise a Zimmerman dress from 20 paces. I think the biggest problem that we have, there's a lot of good businesses in this country, but honestly, if you lined up 30 brands, like one look from all of them, if I can't pick who that is from a lineup, I just think, well, you're doing what everybody else is doing. And I think this is a real problem. And sure, you can, you can, you can have a good trend-based business. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's fine. But if you want to really be seen on a global scale, and I think you, it's, it's very possible to have a nice small niche brand, and, and a lot of people are doing that now, and you can do that, and that's great. 
But if you want to be a big global player, you have to be doing something really different and really unique. And, you know, there's a handful of brands that are doing that and they excite me greatly. Who are some of those? Uh, Will Zimmerman, uh, Dion Lee, Tony Matachevsky, Romance Was Born, oh, PE Nation, killing it, killing it. I mean, and I'm not an activewear fan, but what they are doing is fantastic. You know what I mean? I sort of feel like we, I don't know the numbers globally on all of this, but I sort of feel like we have a lot of brands in Australia for a small country, a relatively small country, like a lot of brands. And I feel like maybe we don't need so many brands, but we need bigger brands, better brands, you know? Scanlon, Scanlon also doing well. Lee Matthews at the moment doing phenomenally well, I think. Just different, you know? And on the subject of activewear, I do have to ask because I looked up your your bio on the Australian. Oh, yes, I know where this is And going. the last line is leggings are not pants. So true. And I, yeah, I wanted to know if oh that you still felt passionately oh, still, about that. I still feel passionately about that. Oh, it just upsets me. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, the only time you will see me in leggings in public is when I am walking the 400 metres from my house to the yoga studio <laughs> up the road. Or I'm actually... On a walk down at Rush Cutters or somewhere, like I only wear active wear when I am being active <laughs> and I just cannot, like I actually, it was funny because a, um, a girlfriend and I went to a yoga class probably four months ago and afterwards went, I mean, I go more often than that, but this particular occasion and she said, oh, let's grab a coffee. And I was like, now, now like this. And she went, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, oh God can we just sit in a corner where no one will see me? Like, I actually, it, it made me uncomfortable to be sitting in a cafe in legging. <laughs> and so anyway, and I had to buy, um, actually, after I came back from Europe earlier this year and I'd been power walking and I realised I just, I didn't, it was cold and I needed a better jacket to walk in, but it needed to be a sort of outerwear kind of thing that covered my bum because I just thought, I just... Yeah, so I bought a great one from the upside that's a long parker kind of thing. So it still wouldn't make me feel comfortable in a cafe. I don't know. I just I struggle with it. I can't I can't do it. <laughs> I am going to admit that I'm definitely guilty of that. But I do okay. I do think that and I've noticed it in myself, I do think it kind of enables you to become a bit of a, a lazy dresser, I think, in terms of those kind of casual outfits are often kind of the hardest and when you can go, Oh, I could just put a leggings and top on you it saves you the decision, which can be good, but also I think can be bad as well. Yeah. I think they're the sweatpant of, you know, the tracky pant of today. I'm just, cause to me, I can't, I can't wear tracksuit pants in public. Like I can't do it. I, I, I find even wearing them at home. I only have one pair actually, the kind of a cutoff pair that I think I was sent at some point actually. And I will wear those if I am like scrubbing the bathroom. <laughs> She doesn't happen as often as it should, just quietly. Um, or if I'm doing some yoga and my at home and my leggings are in the wash or something, I said, oh, I have to put these things on. But even at like I'm currently wearing my house jeans, as I like to call them. Um, I do wear these in public, though, as well. But I actually, I just can't wear tracksuit pants. And to me, leggings are the even worse, possibly the worst, worse, worse than, worse than tracksuit pants in a way. I just don't need to see people's bottoms. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> Now, I did want to talk more about your own wardrobe because I read somewhere that you are a collector of certain things, Mm -hmm. vintage YSL maybe being... Yeah, and I mean, I probably overstate that, but it is true I have a number of pieces. I first found a blouse, and it's mostly blouses actually, and it's kind of from a certain period, which I would put at the late 70s to about about 1983, I reckon. And I found the first one in Washington, oddly. I was there for like two days, some 10 years ago, maybe. And so I found myself at this fantastic vintage shop, could not tell you the name of it. And I found this fantastic peasant blouse. And it was a cotton, dark green, little floral print. And the thing that, because I'm so sun-phobic, I always like to find things with long sleeves for summer in cotton or similar. And I found this blouse and I loved this blouse and so I bought the blouse. And then I was at my same same friend from the yoga session about 12 years ago. She said, oh my God, oh my God, there's this open house to look at, like it was a deceased estate. And she said, we've got to go and have a look because it's an amazing apartment. I went, yeah, sure. So they'd listed in this ad that she'd seen, you know, you know, housewares, art, this, that. 
no mention of fashion at all, right? So we're, you know, looking at this place. It's a bit morbid, really, but um, it was a beautiful apartment. And you'd never get a chance to go in otherwise, right? So we went in there and I just took a little detour into what was kind of some little ante room. I don't know. It was a big apartment. And there were like two clothing racks and it was almost entirely vintage YSL. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, are you actually kidding me? And so I literally did not sleep that night because the auction was the next day and we were going and I was just like, oh my God, this is the most exciting thing ever. I'm, oh my God. And so there were two lots and they, so in those two lots were about eight pieces, mostly blouses again. And I was the only one bidding because no one was there for fashion. They were all there for homewares and antiques and stuff. So I got these two, about eight pieces for $115. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it took me four times that to get it all hand dry cleaned. <laughs> but I still have them. Well, a couple of them are a little bit worse for wear. They already were, but they're beautiful. Are they for wearing or are they for keeping? Some of them I wear because they're in good nick and stuff. A couple of them are quite formal and I have worn them. And a couple of them, one's a bit ratty, so I don't wear that one. But there's another one that I actually want to get repurposed because it's got this phenomenal sort of ruffled V front in taffeta, sort of burgundy taffeta, but it's ripped on the body. So I kind of want to get the details imposed onto another top or something like that. But um, yeah, that's a project I have not quite yet got around to. The seventh product on your list is the product that you trust with your life, which is Neutrogena Norwegian Formula Hand Cream. And I was curious, is that the name or is this the normal? You can only get it in Norway. Oh, no, no. That's just the name name. of it. I'll show you in a minute. It is fantastic. And I always find if I'm traveling in the Northern Hemisphere in winter and my hands will get so dry, my skin generally gets is pretty dry, but my hands will just turn and they're just foul. And I just go... I know what I need to get and I go and get that and within two days they're kind of acceptable again. It is just, it's kind of balm-like. It is phenomenal. It will bring them back from the brink in a couple of days and I've never found another hand cream that will do that. We spoke earlier about your love of music, particularly jazz, so I do want to hear more about that and wonder, I think I read in an interview that you've done previously that you sometimes wonder what would have happened if you'd have kept going with pursuing that full time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I haven't given up hope. <laughs> I'm a late, I've always been a late bloomer, <laughs> which is just as well. Yeah. I think peaking too soon is a bad thing. Um, so look, I still, I, I would just like to be doing it more, I think. And um, yeah, you just don't know, right? You don't know what, if I had stayed in London, for example, so I had this kick-ass band, all ex-Perth musicians. <laughs> And, um, yeah, we were starting to get fantastic gigs. And, look, I have great, mus- great, great musicians that I work with here when I do work. And my longest-standing guy, Carl Dewhurst, we met in London and we used to do a lot of duo work there. And he'd moved back to Sydney just before I did. And so he's, through him, when I first arrived here, I met just this phenomenal group, you know, of his peers. And because he's a phenomenal musician... All the guys I met through him are phenomenal musicians. So that's been a great joy. And last year I was um, I did this great residency at the Centennial Hotel in Wollara with two fantastic pianists. Uh, Danny May is one and the incredible Matt McMahon, who I'd wanted to work with for like 18 years because I met him when I first came here. But because I had Carl, I never really needed a piano player, you know. So um, this was a, they had a grand piano at the Centennial. So I was just like... I wonder if Matt's available. And he was, and it was just, you know, such a joy. So uh, look, I think the thing is, if I did do it as my main thing now, I would kind of, I would probably miss writing. So it's kind of a weird thing. I kind of think, would I, would I just be able to just do that? I don't know if I would be able to just do that. I would probably need to do that, but also have an outlet for the writing. Whereas at the moment I, I do the writing and I have an outlet occasionally with the music so I guess for me I would probably need there would be a need to do both well hopefully we will have more opportunities to hear you live but I will mention that you do have an album that is oh available yes yes on let's iTunes. plug let's plug the album shall we? Nash after blue GT Nash after blue yes it's available uh you can get it either on iTunes or on cdbaby.com or uh, you can just listen to it on Spotify, actually. But they pay very little to artists. It's kind so of so we should buy the album. Buy the album. <laughs> <laughs>
Your final product on your list is your signature perfume. <gasps> Yeah. which is another product from Chanel. Can yeah. you tell me what it fan, is? Um, yeah, it's Chanel Sycamore. So they have a range called Les Exclusifs, which is like you can't, you can only buy it at the Chanel counters in department stores or in their beauty stores. So you can never buy it duty-free, which is a pain because it's bloody expensive. <laughs> but, and they're whacking huge bottles, huge bottles. Um, and I always travel with a full-size bottle, oh. obviously in my main luggage because I can't take it on the plane because it's about, I think it's about 200 mils or something. But I love it. So I found it originally at, it was at a couture show 10 years ago. Was it that long? Yeah, maybe. And it was, it was on the seat as like instead of a goodie bag or whatever, but... Fantastic. Brought it home. I didn't open the perfume itself for six months, maybe longer, because I had some other perfume on the go. And then suddenly I thought, I should give this a shot, you know, and I smelled it. I was just like, oh my God, it's amazing. Because it's quite, it's quite woody. It's quite, it's quite masculine, actually. And the only other people that I know that wear it are guys, including a former flatmate who once I saw, he went, you're wearing my perfume. I said, I think that would be my perfume that you found through me, actually. Can we just be clear on that? And like a waiter once said to me, you're wearing Sycamore, aren't you? Went, yes. And he said, yeah, it's my favourite too. I'm like, but it's, yeah, it's a whacking huge bottle, but it's a beautiful, beautiful scent. And I've been wearing it, yeah, probably for about ten, eight, eight years, nine, ten years. So you're quite loyal to the perfumes that you like. Yeah. Do you know, it's a funny thing because like I had the angel moment in the 90s. And then when I was doing the beauty thing for that minute, I was just opened up to this entirely new world of perfumes. And so I became a bit of a perfume whore for a while there. I was just like, yeah, I'll try that. Yep, yeah, I'll try that. And I was very disloyal. And then I'd always thought it was a very grown up thing, though, to have a signature scent, you know, in the back of your head. You just think it'd be nice to have the one, you know. And then when I found that one, I was just like, oh, no, this is it. This is this is the one. Has there been anyone in particular that you feel has really shaped who you are? personally or professionally? Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, there's so many people that have given me a break or whatever. Like I mentioned Nikki Brigger. I mean, Kate Cox at the Sun Herald was another one. There's been a number of people like that, but I've never really had, you know, a mentor per se. It's an awkward, it's a, it's a funny one because I, in a way, not really one person. I mean, I guess in a funny way, I was thinking about this and, and you know, I mentioned Damien Woolno earlier and we started at the same time at In Style and we are firm friends, <laughs> as anyone would know. And he has, I guess, in a way, apart from, you know, being phenomenal friends and we've seen each other through so many ups and downs in the last 15 years but he's in a way been the one that has made me find the fun in what we do because he had sort of said that one of his former bosses had said you know you've got to enjoy this you've got to actually make this fun because it's a huge part of our lives and I get quite stressy with you know if I'm traveling that I have to be I always meet my deadlines but I'm just get quite anxious about that sort of thing sometimes and every now and then you have to go you know what look where I am. I'm in Paris. Wow. And, and so he's been really good for that, you know, I think to actually be able to just take a moment and go, ah, oh, this is pretty incredible actually. And I will recommend you guys have a joint Instagram account oh, at you're in my seat, yes. which is yes. always hilarious to watch. And you kind of do joint reviews after shows and events and things. Yes. Yes. And that is basically a way to keep two jaded old hacks amused. <laughs> further to what I mentioned earlier. We're kind of astounded at how well received it has been. And I mean, I had a hilarious moment. We, we launched it last year at Fashion Week, just because we'd been talking for years about doing something in the digital realm that was ours. And to be honest, it was a little bit of a thing about, you know, at that time, the bloggers had been making such such a rise to the front row. It's, as my friend says, it's the only industry where you work your way down <laughs> to the front row. And we just thought you know we just want to do something with a bit of knowledge really because a lot of what was happening at the time was with the influences and stuff was very much like this is me this is what I'm wearing yeah and and <laughs> so yeah we just thought we, we want to be able to have something to say that's coming from a place of experience and knowledge and so and we do tend to say it as we see it and <laughs> that has been well received obviously we've spoken about all the products that have a special memory or meaning for you you can only take one with you to beauty island i'm going to give you a bucket load of sunscreen so you don't need okay, to worry okay, about that worry your, about of that. your chosen sunscreen yeah, yeah. so which of the ones that we've spoken about today will you be taking to keep you company okay be maybe 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 the perfume actually which, which your signature the sycamore, the sycamore yeah because if I, as long as the sunscreen's covered, and I'm guessing there's no PowerPoints, so Sadly I can't not. take my hair straighteners, which I couldn't, I didn't mention, but couldn't live without, frankly. Yeah, that's just going to have to go au naturel, isn't it? So yeah, probably the probably the perfume. 
Excellent. Glynis, thank you so much for chatting with me for Beauty Island. It's been so special. (laughs) It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Beauty Island. Did you enjoy it? If you did, you can leave a five-star rating and written review on Apple Podcasts, share on your Instagram story tagging at Beauty Island Podcast, or recommend to a friend. It takes just a few seconds and it really helps other beauty lovers discover the podcast. You can listen each week on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And for the details on where to find Glynis, listen to her album, the products she spoke about today, or how to contact me, head to the show notes where I'll pop all the links for your convenience. And if you're looking for a beauty fix in between episodes and you're not already subscribed, you can sign up for free to my weekly beauty newsletter, It's a Beauty. Each week you'll get reviews, a beauty column and handy tips and tricks delivered straight to your inbox. Beauty without the BS is how I like to think of it. And the link to sign up is in the show notes along with everything else. Thank you very much. And until next time, bye-bye.